Philippians chapter 1. I just want to let you know we're going to be focusing particularly on uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 through the, the end of our reading, through 11. But, but I want to pick up reading uh, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, and hear, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes this, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Chapter 2, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete. By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And now here we are in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Breed. It is good to see those of you who are here. I'm thankful for those of you who are, who are watching online. It's, it's good to be back with you. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I hope everyone had a safe Thanksgiving and a distance Thanksgiving, and you were careful. Uh, but we are, we are glad to be gathered back in the house of the Lord to hear from Him. And I long, I continue to long for the day when we will all be back together, gathered in this place, worshiping uh, the Lord. I'm so thankful for those that come uh, every other week and are committed to that, even though it might seem easier to sit at home and to watch, uh, watch on your computer or your TV. I know for me, and maybe it's selfish, it just does my heart a great blessing to see faces and to see the people that God has entrusted me to shepherd. Um, no knock on you if you're not comfortable with that. I'm just thankful for those of you who are here. You know, this morning we are we're going to continue on in our series on biblical friendship. We've been in it for a few weeks now. 
Uh, And this morning, I want us to take a little bit of time to consider this idea of humility, putting yourself in a position for friendship, putting yourself in a position for friendship. We've spent the past few weeks in our series uh, honestly just trying to lay a foundation for why friendships are not only important, because they are important, but also necessary. I've tried to communicate and lay this foundation that God cares deeply about how we live our lives in relationship to one another, and that includes friendship. We talked about how we, <clears throat> how we as human beings, we are specifically designed by God for friendship. We are built for friendship. We talked about how friendship is not merely a preference for us, but rather it is an integral part of our ministry as believers. And throughout it all, I've tried, I've tried to root all of this in the gospel itself. I've tried to articulate that the gospel reveals to us the message of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It, it, this message declares to us that friendship matters, that Jesus cares about friendship. Even last week, we discussed the reality of what Ed Welch writes when he says that the cross was history's most heroic act of friendship. On the cross, Jesus secured our adoption into the family of God, and in so doing, he changed our relationship with God to the point that we are no longer strangers and aliens, we are no longer exiles and enemies, but now in Christ Jesus, we are friends with God. Friendship is not an arbitrary thing. It is not a a man-ordained concept. Rather, it was established by God in the creation of the world as a reflection of His nature and a means of our own flourishing. So now we've we've come to the point where after laying somewhat of a foundation, I want to begin to talk... uh, a little bit more about how it is we pursue biblical friendship. And, and over the next few weeks, talk a little bit about what our friendships should entail. So again, this morning, I want to I talk about the, this idea, this kind of key idea of putting ourselves into a position to both be and receive real biblical friendship. You know, one of One of the myths that we often buy into when it comes to friendship, uh, the the, the myth is that if if they are real, if our friendships are real, right, if if they're the kind that last, if they're meaningful, then they will, they'll just kind of happen, right? They'll they'll just, they'll happen. You've probably heard people talk about friendships and they say, man, we just kind of clicked from the beginning. We were friends the moment we first met and we've been friends from the jump and we've stayed friends and we've grown uh, to to be deeper friends. And I'm not saying that that can't happen. I just think it's a myth to believe that that's the norm when it comes to friendships, that they all, all of our deep, meaningful, lasting friendships, they'll just happen, I especially don't think that's the norm as we move more into adulthood. Has anybody else, maybe it's just me, noticed that as you grow older, it seems to become harder to make friends? I don't know, maybe it's just me, but, but I, I don't think it's the norm that friendships just happen. You know, recently, I read an article entitled, Friendships Don't Just Happen. And in it, the author 
writes this. She writes this, and I thought it was, it was particularly interesting. She said, when we think back to some of our good friends over the years, we love that we just seemed to click when we first met. It felt easy, it felt natural, it was fun. And we use these stories as evidence to support the myth that when two people should be friends, they'll both know it and it will not feel like work. Again, she says that's a myth. She goes on and writes, what we gain in believing this is the ability to let go of personal responsibility if we don't currently have a meaningful circle of friends. We shrug and comfort ourselves that we just haven't met the right people for this stage in our lives yet. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. She says, however, there is a danger in believing this notion. It's why nearly half of us report being only one confidant away from feeling socially isolated. Many of us, she says, don't even have that one. And, and what she's picking up on when she writes that is the fact that if we, if we think friendships don't take work to cultivate, if we think that they won't take investment and at times toil and labor, then we will never really have meaningful friendships. So then the question becomes, the question we should seek to answer is, well, then how do we cultivate them? All right, if that's a myth and they don't just kind of click and we're friends, then how is it that we cultivate these deep, meaningful friendships? And I would argue biblical friendships. Well, this morning, I want to contend, with, I want to, contend to you that for any meaningful friendship to develop, it demands, first and foremost, that we be people of humility. That we be people of humility. And, and you don't have to take my word for it. I, I, I'm not just contending that because I think it's right. I'm contending that because I think that's what Paul is contending for here in this passage of Scripture that we just read. It, it's the very thing that Paul is trying to communicate to the church of Philippi. I mean, look back at... at Chapter 1, verse 27 again, where we started reading. He says just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He goes on and says, Then whether I come to see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Now this should sounds somewhat similar to us in terms of what we looked at last week. Because we looked at Ephesians 4 last week, talking about biblical friendship is ministry. And in that passage, Paul began and he said, live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you remember that? Live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But here in Philippians, he says a very similar thing. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life worthy of the gospel. So we can look at Ephesians, we can look at Philippians, and we can see that Paul cares about one particular thing that kind of drives his writing, and it's living a worthy life, worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel that we believe in and proclaim by which our salvation has come. But once again, we see something remarkable. When Paul begins to speak about what living a life worthy of the gospel entails, 
he begins again by speaking about our relationships with one another. You know, as, I, as I've said before, he doesn't first talking to, talk about make sure you read your Bible if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel. First thing I need to tell you is that you need to be praying to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, all those things are true. We've established that. They are important. Don't put them to the side. But when Paul begins to speak about living a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, when he begins to speak about living a life worthy of the gospel, he begins by speaking about our relationships with one another. I mean, notice what he says. He says, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm. You might have picked this up from my emphasis when I read it the first time. Firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. So our walking worthy of the gospel depends on how we live among one another. And Paul, Paul reiterates the significance of this, right? He's contending for this as he begins chapter 2 because he says in, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, which there is, if there is any consolation of love, which there is, if, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, which there is, he says this, then make my joy complete. How? By thinking the same way having the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Again, he's thinking about our relationships. Paul is saying it will be to his great joy to see saints united in love, in spirit, and in purpose. And this, this is what Paul's contending, this is how we, we will live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what Paul begins to do there in chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, is he spells out for us how this will happen. How it is we will live in proper relationships, how we will live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we will be united, how we will ultimately live in biblical friendship. And he says this in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. And so with these two verses, Paul lays out how it is we live in relationship with one another, how it is that we, we become biblical friends. And he says, be humble. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. And so Paul is laying out for us that the key to biblical friendship, the key to this, is humility. But praise God in his faithfulness that God knows that that's a little difficult for us to walk out. God knows that it's a little easier said than done. And so God has Paul continue on. And so God knows that an explanation of what this humility will look like or should look like will be helpful. So what does he do? He looks at humility perfected. 
he looks at the greatest of all friends. He looks at the one who performed the most heroic act of friendship the world has ever seen. He looks at Jesus. And he says this in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So after Paul says, listen, if we're going to walk faithful, if we're going to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it demands that we walk together united in relationship, in community, in friendship. And in order for this to happen, he says we have to be people of humility. And what should that humility look like? It should look just like Jesus. It should look just like Jesus. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to look at this example of Jesus beginning there in verse 5. I want to look at this attitude of humility displayed and from these remaining verses draw out four lessons on, humu on humility, not humility, that's not a word, four lessons on humility that I believe, hear me, if we truly grasp these lessons, and we begin to implement them into our own lives, I believe that we will find ourselves in a position to give and receive meaningful biblical friendship. I believe we will find ourselves in a position to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the first lesson that I have for you. Humility begins with an understanding that we are not God. Humility begins with an understanding that we are not God. And Jesus teaches us that. Look at Philippians 2.6. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, before you throw me out as a heretic and you say, wait, Jesus is teaching us that, that we're not God. Are you saying that Jesus is not God? That's not what I'm saying. I want to be clear. I am not saying that Jesus is not God. Wait, yeah, I'm not saying that Jesus is not God because we know that Jesus is God. The very passage that we just read tells us that he was. It says existing in the form of God. John 1, 1 reminds us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. We, we see it in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, that He, again, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. That sounds a lot like God to me. Jesus is God. We're not arguing that. Nevertheless, though, when Jesus came to earth, he was teaching us a lesson. He is reminding us that we have to know our place. We have to know our place. We are not God. And our aim, our role is not to try to be God, but rather to trust God and believe that he knows best. Listen to me, Jesus is a living, breathing picture of a confidence in the Father that leads to trusting the Father. 
He's a living, breathing picture of a confidence in the Father that leads to trusting Him. Now let me show you where I get this. Because in verse 6, as we just mentioned, Jesus is said to have existed in the form of God prior to His incarnation. That means prior to Him coming to earth. That's what the incarnation means. The incarnate Christ is the Christ who has come. So, so prior to his in, incarnation, he existed in the form of God. But, but what we have to wrestle through is what comes next in verse 6, where it says that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be exploited or to be grasped at. Now I want you to know that there have been and continue to be a lot of theological discussion on what it means, first for Jesus to have emptied himself, we see in verse 7, and, and next, that statement that he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. There have been a lot of theological discussions, a, a lot of good arguments, and in some sense, there is a bit of mystery around what that means. We we have an idea, but we don't fully get what it means that Jesus emptied himself. We don't fully comprehend what it means when it says that, that he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but we know enough to understand it. And I would argue that to understand this statement, to understand the statement that he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the story. Because there was another time in Scripture when someone wanted equality with God. And he sought to grasp it in his own way by his own hand. And in fact, Luke calls this man also the son of God when it goes through the genealogy of Adam. So you have the first son of God, who not the divine. Adam was not divine, but he's called the son of God. You have Adam trying to grasp equality with God by his own hand in his own way. Remember Genesis 3, verses 5 and 6, Satan is speaking and it says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining. So she took, she grasped, she grabbed some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. You see, in that moment in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve wanted equality with God. They wanted to be his equal and they sought to accomplish that in their own way. Now fast forward to Jesus. The interesting thing about Jesus is that he is the new Adam. He is the better Adam and Romans 5 compares and contrasts Jesus and Adam. And what we see in Romans 5 is that Jesus is the better Adam. Romans 5, 17 says, if by the one man's trespass, so that's Adam, if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And so Jesus, in essence, here in Philippians 2, 6, is doing what Adam failed to do in the garden. 
He is not seeking to grasp something or exploit his position with the Father for his own gain, but rather he is trusting that the Father knows best and his plan is better. The theologian Ralph Martin helps explain kind of what I'm talking about when he writes this in his commentary. And so, so bear with me as I read it. it. It's a paragraph, but he says this. He says, in his pre-existent state, right? So before Jesus took on flesh, in his pre-existent state, Christ already had as his possession the unique, unique dignity of his place within the Godhead. It was a vantage point from which he might have exploited his position and by an assertion of his right, have seized the glory and honor of the acknowledgement of his office. At this point, he made his pre-incarnate choice, and he considered the appropriation of divine honor in this way to be a tempta- uh, in this way a temptation to be resisted, and chose rather to be proclaimed as the equal with God, as the Lord by the acceptance of his destiny as the incarnate and humiliated one. So let me, let me tell you kind of what, paraphrase what he's saying. He's saying, listen, Jesus existed in glory with the Father as God before he ever stepped foot on this earth. That was his right, that was his position as the Son of God. And so what he says is that it was a vantage point from which he might have exploited his position and by assertion of his right have seized the glory and honor of the acknowledgement of his office, meaning that God had a plan to elevate the Son of God to a place of worship and reverence, which we'll see in a minute here in Philippians 2, right? Where it says that, For this reason, God highly exalted Jesus, gave him the name that is above every other name. And so what what Martin is getting at here is that Jesus had the power and the right and the authority to make himself known and his glory revealed. He could have taken the honor for himself because Jesus is God. And yet the Son of God trusted the Father and said that he would submit to his plan for his glorification rather than snatching it by his own hand. And the crazy thing is he had the right to do it. See, what Jesus is modeling is a submission to the will of the Father. Now, here's why this is so important. Because as we mentioned, Jesus is a living, breathing picture of confidence in the Father that leads to trusting him. And humility demands that we understand that we are not God. We do not determine what is right nor what is good. We don't determine what we truly need. God does. We don't get to define how we live because we are not God. God is God. His plan is perfect. His plan is right. And Jesus shows us that. Jesus, in his incarnation, modeled a trust, a a confidence in God that led him to trust him. And we we have to do that same thing. 
We have to have such a confidence in God that we trust him when he tells us what is good and what is right and what we need. And I hope that over the past few weeks, I have showed you that this issue of biblical friendship, it matters to God. Friendship matters to God. And if that is the case, and we have a confidence in God that leads to a trust in God, then we cannot refuse the thing that God has established that he has said is for our good. We have to trust that God knows best. And if God says that we are a people that need close relationships and deep, meaningful friendships, we will either believe God or not. We will trust him by pursuing this or we will not. But listen, I I know the temptation. I, I know the temptation. Some of you right now may be thinking, listen, I don't really have any deep friendships and I'm doing okay. I I like my life. I'm happy. I like chilling by myself. I like working on puzzles or reading or I I don't know, whatever it is. I'm not making fun. I like to do puzzles too, by the way. Right? But we say like, I'm doing okay. My life's good. Why bother? Well, because God is God and you are not. And he has called us to biblical friendship. Again, I know the temptation. Some of you may be thinking, listen, Pastor Michael, I get it. I believe what you are saying. I believe that it is for our good. And I've really tried. I have sought out biblical friendships, real, deep, meaningful friendships. And you know what happened? I got hurt. I was let down. Why bother doing it again? Well, because God is God and you are not. And he has called us to biblical friendship. And so humility, if we are going to be humble and put ourselves in a position for friendship, this humility begins with an understanding that we are not God. But here's the second lesson I have for you. Humility steps into people's lives. Humility steps into people's lives. Look at verse 7. It says, instead, so rather than considering equality with God as something to be exploited, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. In other words, Jesus stepped into our stories. It was a humbling thing for Jesus to wrap himself in flesh. To put on this sinful garment. This sin-tainted garment. That feels pain and grief and hurt and gets sick and breaks down. And we stub toes and things stop working as we get older. And he wrapped himself in humanity and he stepped into our stories. And you know, friendship will often require you to take the first step. Genuine friendship, biblical friendship may require that you be willing to take the first step into someone's life, into their joy, into their pain, into their triumphs, and into their sorrows. You see, and I want you to track with me. We'll, we'll flesh this out some over the next few weeks. 
but, but I, re- I really want you to hear me say this. The friendship that we are talking about, biblical friendship, the friendship that the Bible values cannot be surface level. It cannot be surface level. It has to go deeper. It goes deeper than did, did you catch the game the other night. It goes deeper than did you see the, the latest episode of uh, the, the mass Singer. It goes deeper than talking politics. It goes deeper than talking about your jobs. Though those things can be a part of it, the the friendship that the Bible calls us to, it, it has to go deeper than that. The friendship we are talking about is one where we step into people's lives, into the nasty, the grimy, the painful stuff, where we wrestle together through sin and struggle, where we are willing to shed tears and be broken together. It demands It demands that we bear one another's burdens. And this will require the humility to step into someone's life. You know, I've I've been blessed in my life to have a few few moments of that kind of friendship. Those profound moments where, ah, what, what Jesus is calling us to makes sense to me. You know, one of those truly impactful moments of friendship in my life happened very, very recently with a brother who was willing to bear my burdens. You know, um, COVID's been tough, hasn't it? Like, it, it has been tough. The isolation, everything shutting down, and it's been tough for me, but, but it's also been uniquely difficult for our community. It's been uniquely difficult for a lot of communities, as a matter of fact, because, you know, there's one thing that we know, right? When kids are bored, they make dumb choices. They do dumb things. You know, we were within the first two months of COVID when another news update popped up on my phone that someone had been killed in the West End, and I I dread those WLKY notifications. I dread them. Because I always wonder if I'll know who it was. And this particular one was the third one of my kids from the center in a two-month time period. Within two months of the start of COVID, I'd lost three of the kids that I've known for years here. And each one of them broke me, but that one, that third one was like the straw that broke the camel's back. I remember... I remember opening my phone in the basement of my house, reading the name. (laughs) My two little girls were sitting on the couch next to me, a little confused. (laughs) And I just started sobbing. It just broke me. I was so hurt. You know, God, I just, I don't understand why you have me down here doing this ministry. These kids that I'm pouring into, they're just going to keep getting shot in the street. Like, what's the point of this? And I was just broken. And By God's sovereign hand in that moment, a pastor friend of mine from here in the city called me and he just said, bro, you were just on my heart and mind. And I'm already sobbing at that point. And so he says that to me and it's just like the floodgates break the rest of the way. And you know, to his credit, in that moment, even more than I realized, he modeled for me what friendship was beyond some pictures that I had seen because he didn't. Not that there's anything wrong with this. He didn't start quoting Bible verses to me that I knew in my head. 
He didn't tell me, well, just trust in a sovereign God because he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he does, and I believe that and praise God. But something happened on the phone where I knew that this brother was bearing my burdens because his voice cracked, and he just sobbed on the phone with me. He didn't say anything. He didn't need you. He just wept. And he just said after a few minutes, brother, I'm so sorry. And in that moment, I keenly remembered, this is what it looks like to step into someone's story. He didn't know those kids. He, he, he didn't coach them in basketball. He didn't play Xbox with them. He didn't laugh with them and take them to camp and, and, and spend life with them. But he was willing to bear that burden and he stepped in. That's what friendship requires. It requires that we be willing to step into the hard moments, the painful moments, that we will weep with those who are weep, that we will be broken when our brothers and sisters are broken. And church, the reason we do this is because that's what Jesus did. He stepped into our lives. He stepped into our stories. And he didn't just talk about the weather. He didn't just talk about the latest sports game or what was going on in Roman politics. No, no, no. Isaiah 53 tells us what it looked like for him to step in. He himself bore our sickness and he carried our pain. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way. And the Lord, the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Family, the message of the gospel is a message of Jesus stepping in and bearing our burdens. He bore the burden of being a human. He knew what it was to lose loved ones. He knew what it was to get sick. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to have a body that was just hurt, that would just hurt and break down. He bore the burden of being human for us. He bore the burden of the law for us. Right, The law that has been a burden to us because we can't keep it and none of us will be made righteous by trying to do enough good things. The law condemns us and he bore that burden on himself because he took the law and he nailed it to a cross he bore the burden of our pain and our grief and our hurt and if you want an evidence for that just look to the suffering savior on the cross but what's even more magnificent is he bore the burden of our punishment and death he bore the wrath of god in our place and for those of us in Christ, check this out. He continues to bear our burdens. He knows our struggles and our toils and our pains right now in this moment. And he intercedes for us. Jesus, in humility, stepped into our lives. And who are we to think that we are above this? Humility, it demands that we step into people's lives. 
But let me add this as to why it takes humility and to step into people's lives. Because there will be times when people will reject us. They will reject our attempts to step in. And a proud person will say, I'm done. It's not worth it. Hurt me too much. Frustrated me too much. I'm done. But a humble person will continue to try to press in and step in to people's lives. Because you know what? People to this day reject Jesus' attempt to step in. Imagine if Jesus would have stopped stepping into people's lives the first time he was rejected. We wouldn't have made it past Adam. One last thing to add on this point before we move on is not only will it take humility for us to step into people's lives, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in the weeks to come, but I want to say it now, it will also take humility to let others step into our lives. Because for some of us, we're like, I'm good, I'll step into anybody's life. I'll deal with their pain, I'll deal with their struggle, I'll deal with their sin, I will bear their burdens. But the question becomes, will you be humble enough to let someone else step into yours? To see your sin and your hurt and your pain and your struggle, will you be humble enough to be vulnerable and tell someone what they already know, that you are a wretched sinner who needs Jesus just like them? Humility. Humility will push us to step in. Here's the third lesson that we see. Humility requires sacrifice. Humility requires sacrifice. Look at the end of verse 7 and verse 8 there. It says, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus' humility resulted in real sacrifice. He sacrificed himself so that we might live. He sacrificed himself so that we might become the friends of God. And as John 15, 13 says, no greater love than this than to lay down your life for your friends. Humility, again, which is required for friendship, will require sacrifice. The type of humility that leads to sacrifice, we're talking about, it, it will require you to sacrifice your time. You might have to get a, give up some of your alone time watching Netflix to go love a brother or sister well. It might mean you have to give up your weekend plans. It might mean you stay up later than you thought you would stay up or that you get up earlier than you thought that you would get up. It may cost you time. It may require that you sacrifice money, that you love and care for friends, that you meet needs, that you be present, and it might cost you physical resources. It will require that you sacrifice your comfort because it is not an easy thing to be humble. That's why Paul wrote this. If we had this thing in the bag, right, like he wouldn't have needed to write this nor give us the example of Jesus. Humility for so many of us is uncomfortable because it demands that we be vulnerable and we don't like being vulnerable. I'll be transparent with you as your pastor. I don't like the idea of my brothers and sisters knowing all the dark, nasty, grimy, sinful places in my heart. But I believe God when he says I need it. 
I need to let you in. I need to let people see that. It will require that we sacrifice comfort. It's not comfortable to weep with some people who weep. For some of us, it's not comfortable for us to cry when we're alone in our rooms, let alone doing it in front of another person. Humility will require sacrifice. But the reason that humility requires sacrifice is because genuine humility thinks about the other person's or, or what the other person may need and considers others' needs as greater than their own. The, the reason humility requires sacrifice is because genuine humility thinks about what the other person may need and considers other needs as greater than their own. Again, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself, not on par with you, not to the same level as you, to consider others as more significant than yourself. Gerald Hawthorne, as he reflected on this section of Philippians 2, he notes this about Jesus, and I love it. He says that for Jesus, his true nature is characterized not by selfish grabbing, but by open-handed giving. That's a lesson that we try to teach our kids, right? That love is a, is a giver, not a grabber. Jesus was a giver, not a grabber. And I love that because that should be the mark of each of us in our friendships, that we are characterized not by trying to grab, not by, by making our friendships all about us, but rather by giving, by giving of ourselves for the good of others, by counting them as more significant than yourself. But here's the beauty of it, brothers and sisters. When we are all united in our purpose, like Paul calls us to, when we are united in our pursuit of friendship, united in our humility, we won't have to worry about sacrificing to the point of exhaustion because others will be sacrificing for us. We won't have to be worried about thinking about ourselves because others will be thinking of, of us. And this leads to the final lesson that I want you to see. I'm trying to move through this last part quickly here, but humility, here's the fourth point. Humility understands that self-exaltation is not the goal. Humility understands that self-exaltation is not the goal. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, for this reason. So what reason? Because Jesus humbled himself, took on flesh, was obedient to the point of death, and even death on the cross. It says, for this reason. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you consider Jesus, it is interesting to note how Jesus' chief aim was not to make a name for himself. Have you ever thought about that? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in flesh, when he was on earth, his goal was not to make a name for himself. Repeatedly throughout his ministry, typically after performing a miraculous healing, Jesus would say, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody what you saw. Rather, go and present yourself to the Pharisees and the elders in the temple, but don't tell anybody what I did. I mean, Jesus was tempted by Satan to make a name for himself. 
Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. I will make a name for you. But then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus' chief aim was to glorify the Father at all costs. But hear me. But Jesus believed that God would glorify him, that God the Father would glorify God the Son at the proper time. We read in John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these things, looked up at heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that, you may, so that the Son may glorify you. If anyone had a reason for self-exaltation, it was the King of Kings. If anyone had a reason for self-exaltation, it was Jesus. Yet Jesus was humble to the point of death, believing, hear me, that God would exalt him at the proper time, and God came through. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. God has promised that he will reward faithfulness in his children. Right, Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Proverbs 22, 4, listen to this one. Humility, the fear of the Lord results in wealth, honor, and life. You see, our goal is to believe that God will do those things for us. That he will give us the reward of faithfulness. That he will, will exalt us to the place that we should be, whatever that may be, when the time is right. And if we believe that, we won't need to exalt ourselves. Our goal is not to make much of ourselves. And the same must ring true in our friendships. Our goal cannot be to make our friendships all about us. Our goal cannot be to make our friendships all about us. All about having our needs met, having people that that meet our expectations and meet our standards. And humility is the means by which we combat the temptation for self-exaltation. It is the way we focus more on others and less on ourselves. Again, our goal in this life is never to make much of ourselves. It is about making much of Jesus. And one of the ways we make much of Jesus is by living like Jesus. And Jesus was humble. Jesus was a good friend. Jesus believed at the right time God would reward faithfulness. And, and I know I've gone a little over, but I want to I finish this. You know what? I go over all the time, so let's just extend what normal is for me, and we'll, we'll just start working with that. Listen, the fact that God will exalt us at the proper time, that God will reward us for our faithfulness at the proper time, this should be an encouragement. Listen, this should be an encouragement to some of you who are just burnt out by be, at being a good friend. Because listen, some of you right now are being excellent friends, and the problem is it's a really one-sided friendship. 
You're the person that people always call when they need advice, when they need care, when they need counsel. And you're the person that no one ever reaches out to to just see how you're doing, to just check on you. Some of you right now might be being really good friends and it's one-sided. Let this truth encourage you not to give up, that God sees your faithfulness. He sees your willingness to step into other people's lives. He, 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 he sees that you understand that this matters to him and so it matters to you and God will reward your faithfulness. Don't give up. I know it's hard. I know it's, and I know that it's some of you in Newbury because you've told me that some of you don't give up because God will reward your faithfulness. God will reward it. I want to caution you to, to fight the temptation to make your relationships all about you because more than we realize, that's what our culture is telling us to do. The message of this age is that if someone does not benefit you, cut them out of your life. If they don't make you happy, remove them. We have elevated self-care above care for others. And that's the complete opposite of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. I'm not opposed to self-care. It's important. As As a pastor, I know it's important. But I also see very clearly in Scripture that the Bible doesn't elevate self-care over the care of others. It just doesn't. Now, again, hear me, I believe that your friendship should make you happy, right? They shouldn't make you miserable. But the beauty is I don't think when we we do friendship right, I don't think that they will make us miserable. I think they will make us happy. I I believe the same truth that Drew, Drew Hunter writes in his book when he says that friendships, real friendships, biblical friendships, they double our joys and half our sorrows. I believe that to be true. But we have to remember that friendships aren't about you. They're not about us as an individual. And so this is something we should be constantly evaluating. Are are your relationships with particular people all about you? I mean, I just mentioned the person that might be burnt out because they're the one who only goes to, you know, that people only go to when they need stuff. And you feel like you're giving and giving and giving and no one ever reciprocates that. Well, on the flip side of that, are you a person that only reaches out to particular people when you need stuff? That you don't ever just check on them and see how they're, doing if, if their life's okay if there's sin in their life do you ever check to make sure this is an okay time for you to even ask for advice or counsel right like if that's you i'm just gonna be frank like you're being a bad friend because friendships aren't about us as individuals our primary goal shouldn't be me in my friendship it should be you and your primary goal should be me and in that we are both cared for You see, the beauty of the gospel is that we are now free to love God and love other people, but the only way we will do this is from a genuine posture of humility. So let me conclude this thing. If we are going to live in biblical friendship, this humility that we pursue must be the pursuit of all of us, not just a few. Because like Paul says in Philippians 2, 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. My prayer for us is that we would be united in our humility and from that humility would flow beautiful, meaningful, biblical friendships. But it starts with humility. Let's pray.